Father in heaven, thank you for this evening. Thank you that we could come together and to think about the book of the Revelation. We pray that you would guide us tonight, that you would give us a clear view of the throne room in heaven and also a clear view of our Savior. So we pray you'd bless our time, forgive us our sins, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for adjusting to the challenging circumstances today. Um, if you get too wet and move, I won't take it personally. Um, we're uh, going through the book of the Revelation. Did everyone get a handout, a little half sheet of paper? Um, this is the, we've come into the second cycle of the book of the Revelation, which leads into the seven seals. So we started off last time talking a little bit about the introduction to um, this cycle, uh, this cycle that really deals with the theme at the top of that sheet, that the church's suffering advances the purposes of God in history. Um, and we, we want to see that as we get this view that John gives us of the heavenly throne room. Um, so this introduction to the, the second cycle um, is quite long. It goes from chapter 4 all the way through the middle of chapter 5, um, and then gets into, or the end of chapter 5, and then gets into the different seals that John sees. So we're going to think of a, a scroll with seven seals that's going to come. So you think of a scroll like you roll it up. And then along that seam, imagine that there are seven seals on that seam. Um, all seven sealing it shut. So you won't be able to unroll the scroll until you break all seven of the seals. Is that clear? I was trying to avoid any artistic necessity by here. And you have a seal, and they're on that line like that. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Um, so the only way to unwind the scroll is to break all the seven seals. That's what we're going to be dealing with as we go on. Um, so first we go into the throne room in heaven. So I'm going to begin reading again at, verse, at chapter 4. And if you remember last time we kind of considered through, um, through to see the seven spirits of God that are in the throne room. So John is seeing the throne room in heaven. And we, we stopped right before we got to uh, the four living creatures that he sees in the throne room. So that's sort of where we've, where we've come in our, our study through Revelation. So I'm going to begin reading at chapter 4, verse 1. Um, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Um, and so we had talked about how John had seen this vision of the throne room and gotten to see these many things. This, this connected with chapter 1 in the sense that it was the same voice that he'd heard speaking behind him in heaven, calling him up into heaven to getting to see what he sees here. Um, and one of the important things somebody brought up to me, you said the 24 out last time, the 24 elders were you know, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. And somebody asked what I thought was a good question. Does John see himself sitting on one of the thrones? Because isn't John one of the apostles? 
Um, And how do we reconcile something like that in this book? Um, And one of the things that I think is very helpful whenever we think about dreams or prophecies that we have in the scriptures, um, anytime we have something where we have to explain how does the prophet see this and how does this vision operate. Uh, For example, in chapter 1, he had the seven planets in his right hand, and then John says, and then he put his hand on my shoulder, his right hand on my shoulder. Um, So what happened to the seven planets? right? Um, and one of the things that really will help us is if you recognize that prophetic visions in the, in the Bible work like our dreams work. Have you ever had a dream where you're back in high school? Dream slash nightmare. Uh, you're back in, you know, you're back in high school. Have you ever had it where the, in the dream, the high school looks nothing like the high school you went to, but you know in the dream it's your high school? Right? That, that's the kind of thing that happens in prophetic visions. There are certain things that John knows are true, that John sees and explains, but like in our dreams, it doesn't, often, it doesn't mean that they necessarily all flow together. Um, when it comes to the scroll in chapter 5, we'll see John knows intuitively this scroll needs to be opened. We need to read this and see what's in this scroll. And it would be a terrible tragedy if we can't get it open, right? And so, he, like, and you might ask the question, how does he know that that scroll is so important? How does he fix his attention on that scroll? Well, it's kind of like in a dream. You can have a dream where you know something's important. You know, you're in a building and you know you've got to get out of that building. Or there's a door and you've got to get through that door. And if you, you know, you ask your rational mind on waking, like, why did I need to get through that door? You don't really know. You just knew in the dream that it was so. The same way you can be back in school and it can look nothing like your school, but you know in the dream it's your school. Um, prophetic visions in Scripture can work like that. And so John can see things, John can be one of the elders on the thrones and John can see the elders on the throne. And you might say, how is that possible? It's, it's like a dream. It doesn't, things don't need to make absolute logical sense that way. And that will really help us with things in this vision if we just recognize it works like our dreams work. That sometimes, you know, you have a weird dream and you think, well, what was that all about? Um, I always like to try to work back through my subconscious. Why did I have that kind of weird dream? And I've concluded that my subconscious is very not, very not interesting. He's not very inventive at all. Um, I can usually track it right through. Like I saw that person, I ate at that place, and I had that dream. It's like the, my subconscious is not very inventive. Um, I can always track it back. But sometimes we have dreams that go, where on earth did that come from? Um, so revelation can be like that. So if you keep that, that sense of a dream and what can happen in dreams, it's the same kind of thing that John is happening, it's happening in him in visions. Um, he sees things, he sees things that represent things that he can, he can recognize from some places um, and that are meant to draw together other visions that have been had in scripture as well. And we see that when we come to the four living creatures. So we've already gone through what John has seen in the heavenly throne room so far. He's seen God sitting on the throne. He's seen the elders around the throne who represent the church of the Old and New Testament together. Um, And now he sees these bizarre creatures. So the second part of verse 6 in chapter 4 we read, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him for li- who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So it can be easy to see the one sitting on the throne. We're like, okay, that's easy, Pastor. I don't even need you for that. That's first day stuff. That's kings sit on thrones. We get it. God's on the throne. The seven spirits are before his throne. That was from chapter 1. And in case we miss it, we're told plainly that that's the seven spirits of God. The 24 elders around represent the church. Um, And so what do these four living creatures represent? Um, Well, this this is where we'd be helped really well if we knew our Old Testaments as well um, as John probably knew his. Because, Because we would say that sounds vaguely familiar. Where did I see living creatures kind of like this? Does anyone know where we see living creatures like this in the Bible? Ezekiel 1. You get a gold star. I don't have a gold star, but I owe you. Okay, so Ezekiel 1. We see figures like this. Except they're a little different in Ezekiel. Um, Because in Ezekiel, first of all, they... They each have four faces, and each of the faces is one of the things that we see here. So in Ezekiel's vision, each creature, all four creatures, have four faces. They have the faces um, that are described here, Um, the faces of a lion, an ox, um, a man, and an eagle in flight. Um, So they have those four faces, each creature. So It's kind of the same, but it's a little bit different. Also, Ezekiel in his vision says that they all had four wings. Um, And here you'll notice that they have six wings. Um, And so it's like Ezekiel's vision, but it's not exclusively like Ezekiel's vision. And so the six wings should bring to mind another kind of vision. Um, Who sees who sees images with six wings? Yeah. Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees cherubim flying around. You'll remember the cherubim have six wings. And what do the cherubim say as they fly around? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, what, what, do, what are these living creatures saying in worship? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, so what, what's being brought to mind here by God? These two visions in the Old Testament are being brought together as one. John is seeing both what Ezekiel saw and what Isaiah saw brought together. Um, brought together for the purpose of communicating all that they saw as one whole. Um, because not only do... We see the, the, the comparison to Isaiah 6 and, the, and the, the cherubim that he saw. But also in Ezekiel 1, these living creatures were around the throne. 
Um, they're full of eyes within and around. Um, and you might remember the, that there was wheels on the throne in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel gets even weirder in terms of having these creatures and then a, a throne with wheels on it. Um, and people have wondered, why, why does the throne have wheels? Um, and the throne has wheels because it was God's prophecy to his people that the throne will go with them into exile. So they were getting carried away into exile, but the encouragement that was coming through Ezekiel's vision is, don't worry, the throne's got wheels. The throne will go with you. Um, it'll be the same kind of God, the same kind of throne. It's going to go with you where you go. Um, so God's presence is not going to leave you. Um, and so notice in this throne room, there are no wheels on the throne. Um, and it'll become clear why there are no wheels on this throne, because this throne is established. There isn't going to be any more captivity for the people of God. They've actually come home uh, to the throne that's fixed and established through the victory of the Lamb who secured the throne and released his people from captivity. But it's still full of eyes all around. Um, and that reminds us that God knows everything. He sees everything. That's the picture, this weird picture of the eyes being everywhere. It's the, um, what we call the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows everything. He sees without and within. Um, so all of this is being brought together uh, to assure God's people um, and to use Old Testament pictures as building blocks for this picture. So what first strikes us as a very strange picture actually makes a whole lot of sense. It's being connected to Old Testament images that God's people would have been familiar with. Um, and so God uses visions to adapt to the needs of his people in the moment. Ezekiel's people needed to see this, these four living creatures around the throne that would go with them into captivity. Isaiah, in the year King Uzziah died, needed to see the Lord on his throne high and lifted up. And the church in suffering needed to see the whole brought together. Uh, to, to see that there is a throne room of God that's been established, that's surrounded not just by the church, but by the angels in glory, where God sees all things, knows all things, and is ruling and reigning for his people. Um, that that's the reality in which the church lives. That's what John is getting a vision into. Um, and that's a wonderful reality for us. Wonderful, especially when we consider um, the functions that these, that these creatures had. Um, they're represented in this passage primarily as worshipers, um, but we know that the angels, and particularly angels in the throne room, have um, particular functions to, to carry out. Um, so they're going to implement the judgments that are ordered by the Lord when the seals are broken. Um, when the seals of the, the scroll begin to become broken, it's these four living creatures that are going to begin to act, um, to act on the Lord's behalf in the world. Um, and when the climax of judgment comes, it's going to be one of the living creatures who will give the seven bowls of God's wrath to the angels who are to pour them out on the earth. These are messengers of God to do his will in the world. Um, and we remember, that's what angels' functions are. Uh, they were to carry out the will of God. Angel really just means messenger. Um, and that's what they do. They're to minister to the saints. They're to minister on the behalf of God. They're to do his will in the world. Uh, that's what they do. And that's what these living creatures are going to do. Um, and since they re represent the cherubim from Ezekiel's vision, 
Their presence also recalls that part of the, the function of cherubim were to guard the heavenly throne room. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were reminded over and over again that God sits enthroned above the cherubim. That's how his throne was always talked about in the Old Testament. It, it was referred to that way over and over again. And the cherubim are always the guardians of the holy place. You might remember when Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, and God says they may come back and try to eat of the tree of life, which is not for them. He sets a cherubim there to keep them out. Right? Who stands there with a flaming sword return that turns every way, you know, to keep anybody out from the throne room. That's one of the cherubim's functions, to protect the holiness of, of God's dwelling place, in a sense. They're, they're sort of the sentinels of his holy places. That's why if you think about the Ark of the Covenant, what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? It was, it was two cherubim who were reaching out towards each other and who were over the mercy seat. And God said, you're to think of me as dwelling above those cherubim. And interestingly, when they, when they made the, the veil to the Holy of Holies, when they made that veil, that thick curtain that was to stand between God's people and the holy place, they were told to work into that veil pictures of cherubim. So you had this reminder, here are the cherubim that stand blocking the way to the holy place. And it was a constant reminder to God's people going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, unholy people can't have access to the holy place. And so we're still being reminded of those, those holy guardians of God's holiness in that place um, by this representation to us um, of these cherubim. And all of that in the Old Testament was to remind God's people that there is a throne room in heaven, the true holy place of God, of which the earthly things were only copies. And it was to teach us something about that earthly holy place where God sits enthroned above the cherubim. Um, and so God's people are always meant to think that way, to think there is a holy place where God dwells, and what did the Old Testament remind them of time and time again? And you can't enter in there because he's holy and you're not. Right? That's that veil that stood between the, the holy place and the holy of holies told you very clearly, you can't come in here unless you're holy. And that was the law too. The, whole, the high priest can come in here once a year with blood, but if anyone else tries to come in, they're going to be struck down. God's holiness will break out against them. And so the Old Testament is filled with these reminders that, that the way is closed. You can't go to the tree of life. You can't go to the holy place where God dwells. That your sin is barring you from access. That's what, that's what cherubim reminded us of over and over again. Um, that God is high and lifted up and that he dwells behind the cherub, among the cherubim. So it's not just that John sees this picture that should bring home to us so there's a wonderful new reality. It's that John has entered into the throne room. The cherubim are there, but they're not stopping him. Um, it would be easy for us to just kind of pass by the fact that John is kind of parading us around the throne room of God. Right? That, that in the Spirit, he's able to walk in and see what's going on in the throne room of God. And that there are these four living creatures there whose job it is to protect the holy place from unholy people. And John is able to come up and come in 
And he doesn't meet them as opponents, but as actually fellow worshipers. And we could easily pass by this just with the weirdness of creatures that look like men and ox and eagles and what on earth is going on here. But we would miss the real import of what John is doing. John has entered into the throne room of God and he belongs there. He's welcome there. He's fit for that place. And the angels don't attack him. And his reaction is not, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. The whole point is the Lord has invited him in and he's there and he could just join in the worship as someone who belongs in the holy place. Um, And that's an amazing thing. And not only does he enter in, that would have been great enough if just John would go in, and we might say, sure, John can go in. John's the apostle that Jesus loved. Of course John goes in. But by giving John this vision that he's to give to the churches, what is God saying? He's saying, you come in too. That the throne room of heaven is not just a place for John, it's a place for us. And we can enter into that throne room. Um, what, one of the things we're going to learn in the book of the Revelation is we can get so off track looking at things that we think are the big things going on in that passage, and they're really not the big things going on. And the big things we miss trying to figure out, now who's the creature with the eagle face? Um, you know, who, who's the eagle-faced looking world leader that this creature represents from history? You know, we can get involved in all kinds of silliness with it, but the magnitude of what happens is John can enter the holy place and just be around the worshipers, both the church of all times and places and the angelic worshipers and the one who sits on the throne and be welcome there. That despite all the images that are brought of Jesus of Isaiah, you know, falling down as a wretch, there's none of that in John. Because it's a different vision and it's a different time. It's a, it's a remarkable reminder to us the way's been opened. And why don't the cherubim stand there anymore? Why aren't they blocking us out of the Holy of Holies? Well, it's because of what the Old Testament also always taught God's people. There is a way in. There is a way in. Right? There's a way. It's a a veil, not a wall, that the cherubim is inscribed on. And there is someone who can go in there once a year. He can't go in there unless he brings the blood of the atoning sacrifice. But he can go in with that. And he can make atonement for God's people and he can take that blood and he can actually put it on the mercy seat beneath the cherubim and not die. But even he could only do that once a year and he was not allowed to stay there. He had to leave again. And when he left, they closed it again. They even tell stories of, you know, they would tie something to him so that when he went in, if he died in there, no one would have to go in after him. They could just, they could just roll him out. Um... And what was that always telling God's people? There's a way in, but it's not open. And that was, that was what Eden testified to. That was what the temple testified to. That was what the tabernacle had testified to. There's a way in, but it's not open. You can't go into the holy place. And what happens when Christ dies on the cross? 
the veil is torn from top to bottom. And you can imagine that picture of the cherubim that's beautifully worked into this huge veil is torn apart in half. And what's that message telling us? Now the way's open. Now you can come into the holy place. Now the holy place is for a holy people who've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice has been offered that could take away sin. What does the writer of Hebrews say? That they, why is it that they had to keep going in there every year? Because that blood couldn't take away sin. That blood couldn't fully offer an atonement for people. But when Jesus went into the holy place, he offered himself as the atoning sacrifice that does take away the sin of the world does put out the altar fire of God's wrath, does make God's people holy, does open the way so that the Holy of Holies is now a place for us. That, that's the, the weight of what we miss in the book of the Revelation if we chase after little unimportant details and don't see the magnitude of what's happening here, that John is able to enter into the Holy of Holies, that we're able to enter with them, and it's a place we find where the angels don't rush to kill us as unholy people, but say, yeah, join us as fellow holy ones and servants of the one who sits on the throne. Um, and that they can be seen there primarily not as guardians, but as worshipers. And they worship the one who sits on the throne with the church that's represented by the elders. And they all worship the Lord together. And what do they praise him for? Um, they praise him for who he is, right? The angels worship the four living creatures representing all the angels, they worship the living, the four, 24 elders representing the church, they worship. So men and angels in glory before the throne, they all worship God. And what do they worship? They worship Him for who He is. Right? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy to be praised. Right? God need, we need no, need no other reason to praise God than just for who He is. His being is enough for us to praise Him. But they don't just praise Him for His being, they praise Him for what He's done. And what is the praise that they're singing to the one seated on the throne? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They're praising God for the great work that He did. Not just that He is great, but that He's done great things. And what is the great thing that He's done? He's called all of this into being, from nothing. He's made the world by the, by the power of his will, and he's made it very good. And they cast their crowns at his feet, and they prostrate themselves, acknowledging that all glory and honor belongs to him alone. It's a glorious picture of this worship that's going on, right? That John gets to be a part of, that the church and the angels together participate in. It's a wonderful picture of worship. Um, so John sees this, and then all of a sudden in his dream, his attention, his attention is riveted to a scroll. Right? And you say, well, why does this scene shift like that from you know, this, this worship scene to this scroll? Like, Why does this scroll suddenly become important to John? It's a dream. That's the way things happen in a dream. It's like suddenly he knows this scroll is really important. Um, he, knows that he sees this scroll um, in the hand of him who is seated on the throne. Right? I saw on the right hand of him, so chapter 5, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Um, As I said, John sees this scroll and he knows there's nothing more important than this scroll opens. So it's a scroll, like in my beautiful artwork, you know, rolled up, and then it's, you can see there's writing on it, and you know that there's writing on the inside, but it's sealed with these seven seals, and unless someone breaks all seven seals, you can't unroll the scroll and see what it says. And John in this vision knows there's nothing more important than that seal being broken and that scroll being opened and somebody reading what's in it. Um, He knows that's the most important thing to happen. Um, And probably that's meant to conjure up images of the book of Daniel. Um, Probably that's, again, why the vision is being employed. Why a scroll? Well, because God's people had seen a scroll before. That was in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Um, Near the end of Daniel's prophecy, what did God say to him? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Really kind of seal the scroll. So Daniel, roll it up and seal it up because it's not to be, it doesn't need to be opened until the time of the end. And so I think what that's meant for us to see is John is in heaven. He sees everybody praising. It's this wonderful environment. And now he sees the one who's sitting on the throne has the scroll in his hand. And I think it's meant to convey, here's now what Daniel was told. You open that scroll when the end has come. Right? Now, we've all been watching movies or a play or something. We're waiting for the end to come. Um, you know, the we'd like it to be over because it's been terrible. Um, we, we see that kind of thing. We, we know what that's like to feel like the end needs to come really quick. Um, that's how somebody talked about the canons of the Synod of Dort when the Arminians were presenting their case. Um, they said, well, he finally reached the point that all the delegates were waiting for, the end. Um, and then they said, get out. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've all sat there and thought, you probably sat through some of my sermons and thought, when is this going to end? Um, he's just keep going. That's, now we're starting the third point? Um, You know, we've all had that feeling. That's not what we mean here by the end. The Bible has always talked about there's there's now and then there's a time when this will be over and something new will start. And always in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to the time when the end would come. When the old time would be over and a new time would be starting. Because all throughout the Old Testament, it was that new time where all the promises were fulfilled. It was this time will be over and that time will come. And so Daniel sees this beautiful vision, kind of weird to him at times. He doesn't know what to make of it. Sometimes it makes him sick to his stomach. He has to go lie down. But it's all telling us about the the ancient of days coming, the glory that's coming with the fulfillment of his kingdom. But the sad thing for Daniel is at the end he's told, roll it up and seal it up because it's not going to happen now. Um, You won't need this until the end, until that time has come. And so what's being conveyed to John is, here's the scroll that was sealed, now it's time to open it. And when it's opened, you'll know it's the end. You'll know that the time has come. We've finally arrived. And so what we're meant to be brought into is John's experience of saying, here it is, we're at the end. The time that everybody's been waiting for has come. All we have to do is get the scroll opened and it's done. It's the end. Then all the promises will be fulfilled. They'll come pouring out of this. And then what's the problem? 
Nobody can open it. And it's like it's so tantalizingly close, but you can't get in. Uh, When I was in college, friends of mine for spring break, we drove from Chicago across country to my grandparents' cabin in the mountains, and we drove like for 35 hours straight. And we came exhausted to my grandparents' cabin, and I went to the spot where the keys were always hidden, and there were no keys there. And we were facing the prospect of having to drive down to my grandparents' house in the Bay Area two and a half more hours, get the keys, drive two and a half hours back up, and all we wanted to do was be out of the car, in the house, and go to sleep for a while. And I remember that feeling of like being there, but not able to get in. Um, that's what John's, the, that's in a much greater way, um, much more serious event um, than my spring break travails. We did find the key and got in. It was wonderful. Um, and the scroll does open, spoiler alert. But in the meantime, it's that horrible feeling of like, here we are right at the end and we can't get in. Sort of to know that, you know, like heaven's on the other side of this door and all I got to do is get through it, but I don't have the key and nobody I know has, knows has the key. How are we going to get through this? And John just starts to weep, right? Weep loudly. He ugly cries over this whole situation. Um, it, it's terrible, to, to be right there on the cusp of the end and not be able to get there. Um, we're, we're meant to feel that, that level of frustration that he, that he has. Um, and, you know, God's people can feel like we're so close and are we just going to be frustrated again? You know, God, God's people had gone through this a number of times in their history where they thought, you know, we'll just get out of the wilderness and then we'll get into the promised land and everything will be great. And they get in the promised land, but they don't do everything that they're supposed to do. And they do pretty well while Joshua and his generation lives. But when they die, they start living poorly. And then they say, you know, what we really need is a king. Um, they get a rotten king first. They get a king like they wanted. And then God gives them a king after his own heart. And he begins to rule. And they say, you know what, this could really be something. Um, but he dies. And his son has a good beginning but he has a bad end and the kingdom fractures and you get kings that come and go and some of them are good and some of them aren't. Some of them go back to kind of a high point. You know, you get like a Hezekiah or a Josiah and you say, look, we got no one like, no one's been like this since David. This guy's really serious about holiness. And then he dies and then they go into captivity and then their, the remnant comes back and they're small and they're weak and they're saying, well, you know what, maybe now because God promised that after this time, we'd be lifted up again, but the, some of those later prophets wrestle with that. Like, where, where is the promise that after we're returned, we'll go back to the former glory? You know, they rebuild the temple, and the older people who remember the Solomon's temple cry because the temple's so pathetic compared to what it used to be in its glory. And God's people have, have had that fit feeling throughout time. We have really hoped, and then the hopes are dashed. And even the disciples on the Emmaus Road say that to Jesus, not knowing it, right? We had so hoped that he was going to be the Savior, that he was the Christ, that he was going to deliver us. And there's been those, those, those moments in God's people, and we live those moments in history. The God's people feel like we're so close, right? Jesus is coming again soon, but he's just not here. And our hope's, our hope's going to be frustrated one more time. 
And it's nice to know that John is like us. He knows what it is to live in the frustration, that even a disciple like John can, can ugly cry over the frustrating circumstances of life in this world, of being so close and wondering, you know, are our hopes and dreams going to be disappointed one more time? I, I so thought we were here finally at the end, and are we really going to be disappointed? This is a real experience of the church. In the, to, to realize, are we at the cusp of, of glory just to be disappointed again? Um, and, then, and then comfort comes. Right? Just the minute he's thinking, maybe this time of the end has been missed. Maybe my hopes have been once again frustrated. Um, a word of comfort comes to him. And notice where it comes from. Right? So, I wept loudly, chapter 5, verse 4, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Why is, why is that significant? Why is it that it's not one of the angels that tells him, weep no more? Or the one on the throne tells him, doesn't tell him to weep no more? Why is it one of the elders that tells him not to weep anymore? The elders represent the church. And in a powerful way, where does the consolation, even for the Apostle John, come from? God gives that message not to, even, not to his spirits, not even to his angels. He gives it to the church. It's the church that comes to John and says, weep no more. That, that's the job of the church in this world, to talk to our, we talk to the world, we want to try to win in Christians, both in the, in the way that we preach and the way we conduct ourselves in the world. We want people to be brought in, that they might know Jesus Christ the way, the way we do and be saved. But the church knows that we also need the encouragement from one another in those moments of intense frustration and suffering to be comforted to know that there's hope. And that message of hope comes to John from the church. And what is the content of, of the comfort? Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. And why has he conquered? To bring the end. He has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. So that this time a promise can come. And so the, the, the scene shifts from this, this problem of the scroll to the one who's come who can open the scroll, which is the great news. right? And, that, and that's, that also needs to be the church and its suffering needs to follow through the whole picture. We are going to be frustrated. We are going to feel like hopes are dashed. You know, and we can, we can get, again, go through history. When, when Constantine became emperor, okay, now there's a Christian emperor. Now surely everything will be great. Well, everything wasn't great because we were fixing our hope in the wrong place. Um, who, who's going to come and make everything great? It's Jesus is going to come and make everything great. He's the one that can bring the time of the end. Um, and that's the comfort we give to each other. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. That's the message of comfort we, we say to each other. Weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered. He can open the scroll. He can bring the time of the end. Um, he can put an end to our suffering and to our wandering and bring us to that glorious place the church has always been looking for and could never get without him. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered and he can open the scroll. 
And so as the scene shifts from the scroll to the one who can open the scroll, we're loaded for another amazing picture, right? Because how has he been described? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? that's, That's a symbol of power. When, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he, w- he was saying, all right, I'm going to start with the oldest. Reuben, unstable as water. Simeon and Levi, men of blood. That, they're not the ones on my blessing fall. But Judah's like a lion crouching over his prey. Right? Judah's the one who's the, the king. The scepter will not depart from Judah. That, that's what Jacob sees. And, and the image of, of, of Judah there is an image of power. Right, a lion over its prey. It's killed its prey and it's eating. And the last thing you want to do is is get over there while the lion's eating. Right, it's already covered in blood. It's not a good idea to go. This is the practical advice portion of the evening. It's not good to go mess with lions while they're eating. Just stay away from them entirely is the best advice. Um, But it's a symbol of power. He's looking at you over the prey with blood all over his face and in daring you to come and mess with him. Right? It's sort of that picture of all the other animals on the desert sort of walking around the carcass but not coming close to the lions while they're eating. Judah's the picture of power. And we might, we might be thinking we're, we're being set up for a big image here. Maybe like in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan, this big lion who gets bigger every time they see him, they say. Right? We're thinking of power. He's also the root of David, so we're being reminded that he's, he's a king. He's born of royal fighting stock. David was a fighting man. He was a conqueror. He was a king. So we have all these like powerful images and we're, we're maybe loaded for, boy, this is going to be the greatest thing in the heavenly throne room we've seen yet. Um, and so we see the lion of the tribe of Judah and what do we actually see? Between the throne and the four living creatures, in verse 6, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Like, talk about your letdowns. In terms of the description, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who's conquered, who can come and do all this. And when you look at him, what, he's a little lamb who looks like he's been killed. Um, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God um, set out into all the earth. It's not a picture of power. Um, it's, a, it's a picture of triumph through weakness. Right? It, it's a lamb who was slain. Uh, it's a reminder to us about you know, the main theme that we're, that we're going to keep coming to in this cycle, the church's suffering advances the purposes of God in history. The slain lamb, the lamb that looks like it's been slain, is the, the best picture of that. The church triumphs through suffering. Um, because the lamb was slain. So the church triumphs through suffering, but that faithful suffering is the path that leads to victory. Because the lamb was slain, but it's standing. It was slain, but it's alive. And it's alive with power. Seven horns. So the horns are a picture of power. Seven eyes, a picture of knowledge. Seven is the number of perfection. So it's, 
It's a lamb that looks like it's been slain, but it's standing and it's perfect in power and perfect in knowledge. Um, he's triumphed through his suffering and come out the other side worthy of divine honors. Worthy to have the same things sung of him that were sung of the one who's seated on the throne. And, and if we don't get that the picture of how the lamb and the one who were on the throne are very closely related, the lamb does something that would have been shocking to everybody watching. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Again, it's one of these moments that I don't think it sufficiently shocks us to think about doing something like that. Who's got the authority to walk up and take something out of the hand of the one seated on the throne? Given the, given the picture of the one seated on the throne we were given, who would dare to do that? Only one who's got the authority to do it. Who's been granted the authority to do something like that, to take the scroll and not just to take it, but to open it. And it's when he's taken the scroll that it becomes clear in this heavenly picture that he is worthy to open it and that he is worthy of praise. And we're told in verse 7, And when he took the, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. If you want to know why people picture us as angels in heaven with harps, you can blame this verse taken out of contest. Um, what, what are the harps for? The harps are to praise God. The, the, the saints are pictured here as with, with their prayers and their praise. The harps symbolize the praise of God's people. The golden bowls, we're told, symbolize the prayers of the saints. They're there with their praises and with their prayers and with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They fall down before the throne and they sing a new song. They sing a new song. What was the old song? Well, the old song we, we saw in the previous verses in chapter 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. The old song of praise is for God who is and who created. What is, what is the new song in verse 9? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is the new song? It's not the song of creation, it's the song of redemption. The lamb is worthy of the same honor as the one sitting on the throne, but the lamb is not the creator, the lamb is the redeemer. The lamb is the one who came and, lit and shed his blood for his people. Um, you know that we're never told who the Lamb is. Um, I think we all know that it's Jesus. That's, I mean, that's not really hard for us to know, right? I mean, we know that, it, that the Lamb is Jesus. We're never, we're never told that this is Jesus here. It clearly is. If you thought I was going to have this new revelation, I don't. Uh, it is Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's not what's new, but it reminds us that in Revelation... That's most often what he's called. 
um, that the name Jesus is not used that many times in the book of the Revelation. Um, the name Jesus appears 14 times in the whole book, um, and eight of those times are in the introduction and in the conclusion of the book. And what he's called most often, 28 times in this book, is the Lamb. It's not because it's not Jesus or hard to figure out that it's Jesus, but that's the name he wants to be known by in this book. Just like in his earthly life, he often referred to himself as the Son of Man. That was the name he identified with, the title he identified with in his earthly life. Here in the book of the Revelation, it's the Lamb. And why is that? Because the book of the Revelation is constantly reminding us who is the one that has triumphed. It's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. It's the Lamb of God who came to lay down his life for his sheep. Um, We so often call him the Lamb of God, um, I think in part because of the book of Revelation. Because the New Testament doesn't talk about him that often that way. John the Baptist says that when he sees him walking by. He says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Um, But there's really only two other New Testament references outside of Revelation to Jesus being the Lamb of God. Um, In 1 Peter, we're told you were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we're told cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. But in this book that's coming to the church in all ages, the church in all ages that's going to be called to suffer and to recognize that that victory comes through faithful suffering, what what is the name by which Jesus wants his church to remember he's known? He's the lamb. He's the lamb who laid down his life for the sheep. Through his sacrifice, uh, sin and salvation have become the victory of God's people. So he's worshipped just as the one on the throne is worshipped. Um, he's worshipped and given and accorded to be one worthy of all glory and honor because he died to ransom his people. Um, the Lamb is the Redeemer and the Savior and the object of the praise of the new song as the one who's triumphed and overcome. Um, and so he's everyone in heaven, this heavenly throne room, we see then they're joined in their worship. Um, We see that. Then I looked and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see how that, that praise just expands until it's just not, the, not just the heavenly throne room, but the myriads of angels join in the praise. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth with all that's in them says, glory and honor be to the Lamb and to the one who sits on the throne. Um, and the four living creatures say, Amen, and the elders fall down and worship. This, this is the introduction to the second cycle. This is the introduction to how we're to think about what's coming in the seven seals. 
um, as they become broken and as they represent the suffering. Um, it, we start in the heavenly temple to be reminded of the heavenly viewpoint that God's people need to take before they look at the history of the world, to recognize that heaven has a purpose in our suffering and is working out a purpose through his people in the world. Um, my dad says, the heavenly temple is magnificent in its splendors and praise with the lamb at the center of it all. Here is an open door to enter and a fellowship to cherish. Here is a glory worth enduring any suffering to enjoy. Here is indeed the glorious lamb who can reveal and direct history to its end. And so before we go into the seven seals and before we see what comes when the scroll is open, we have to begin with a sure knowledge of God's power and authority. This is the God who created all things. This is the Lamb who redeemed His people by His suffering, the Redeemer who's restoring what is fallen and rescuing a people for His name from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Um, that God has a purpose that He's working out. I and mean, just as faithful suffering was His only sure path to victory um, in His conquering, so that's going to be true for His people. Right, that our only sure path to victory is overcoming the suffering we'll have to face in this world. But to know that heaven is working out a purpose, that just as Christ's suffering was not fruitless or without purpose, so the suffering of God's people in this life is not going to be fruitless or without purpose. Um, and so that brings us to the seven seals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say what the impact would exactly have been because we know that, you know, there, there have been early times in the book where they've been saying, you know, the Jewish community you're a part of in Asia Minor is, is a synagogue of Satan, so don't believe what they say about you. So some of that, even despite the temple sacrifices, had not persuaded them. Um, we might remember that this is probably 20 years, 20, 30 years now after the temple's been destroyed, so there aren't any more sacrifices being offered um, so that ceases to be at some point part of really the Jewish religion. But yeah, that's certainly what John is trying to do, John the Baptist is doing and saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, that would have been clearly in his Jewish context to his Jewish audience what he's trying to convey. So that is definitely the picture that's being conveyed here. And Hebrews tells us that people were supposed to be reminded by these sacrifices being gone through year after year that Sin couldn't be dealt with without blood, but this blood wasn't sufficient to deal with it. And finally, Jesus comes and lays down his blood, which is sufficient. But even the writer, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who are tempted to go back to Judaism. And one of his arguments for those people who are tempted to do that is to say, you're going back to the types and shadows that were fulfilled in Christ and to the bloody sacrifices that can't take away sin. And that, that's all nonsense now that the reality has come. When the reality comes, you don't go back to the picture. Um, and that's always been what the church was trying to convince Israel to realize. Um, but it was difficult for Paul in the first century, and it was probably difficult here 
for them to see it as well. That's definitely what it's meant to do. Whether it lands is all you know, to the work of the Spirit. But it's, it's the foolishness of our own sinful hearts that we would always like to go back to the pictures when the reality has come. Um, my, my grandfather was a prisoner of war when my mother was born. And he was a prisoner of war for about the first two years of her life. And they would always show her a picture of my grandfather and say, this is your dad. And when we finally got back from World War II and walked in the door, um, they said, here's your dad. And my mom ran and got the picture and said, no, this is my dad. Um, and, you know, you don't go back to the picture once the realities come. And she quickly learned that it's better to have dad than a picture of dad. Um, but, but that's essentially what you're doing if you run back to the picture. You're running back to the thing that was tr- trying to picture the reality in a, in a simple way, but isn't the reality, and the reality is better in every way. And that's why, in part, the writer of Hebrews goes through to say, he's better than Moses, he's better than Abraham, he's better than Levi, he's better than Aaron, he's better than everything, he's better than everything you had, don't go back to that. Um, and so that was always the temptation for for Jews in the, first, in the first few centuries to continue to believe that Jesus is not the Christ, the, the promises have not been fulfilled, those old establishments are all still in order. But to do that is really to try to sew back together that temple veil that Jesus tore from top to bottom and said, this is over. Um, because you don't go back to the temple when the real temples come. This temple I will tear down and rebuild in three days. You know, all of that imagery trying to say, and almost everything, all the I am statements in John are almost all aimed at you know, Jewish festivals and saying, I'm greater than, you, know, you had bread in the wilderness, the manna that you love to talk about, I'm the bread of life. Um, the water that God provided out of the rock, I'm the living water. Drink of me, you won't be thirsty again. You like these lights that we put up during these festival times, I'm the light of the world. Um, there are all those things that Jesus keeps doing to try to say, I'm the promise fulfilled. And that was the church's task, that he's the promise fulfilled. That's what John is saying here. Whether people believed it, again, is down to you know, the work of the Spirit and individual hearts. But our attitude should be what Paul's attitude was. I, w- I would that all of them were saved. Um, so yeah, it's definitely meant to, to touch a nerve with, with, with Jews who would have been making a lot of those sacrifices of lambs and to know that this is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Any other questions? Okay, I do want to get into the to the seven seals. Obviously, not all, not through all seven, um, but at least begin with with some of the seals and see see how far we get. Um, but the first four seals kind of go together. The, the Lamb who has the authority to open the scroll in chapter six does begin to open the scroll. Um, and when he opens the scroll, we see coming out what we often call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, the four riders who come to the earth. So the first four seals lead to the appearance of four horses and four riders, uh, the, four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the apocalypse is just what Revelation was called. So, um, so what do we see? Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another, cor- another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. 
and he was given a great sword. And when he opened a third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given over authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. That's why they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So they come. The first one is maybe the most interesting and, and the most easy to mistake for someone else because he comes as a white rider. Um, he comes as a rider on a white horse. And if we know our Western movies well, the guy on the white horse is usually the good guy. The Lone Ranger, you know, he rides on his white horse, silver. You know, the good, good guys ride white horses, they wear white hats. It makes it very easy for all of us. Um, the, the white rider comes, all right? So the, this, this meaning might say, is this a good thing? After all, everyone's really looking forward to this. I mean, we know that they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so we know that nothing good is coming right now. Um, but when, the, when these first four seals go, these, these four horsemen ride out, and the first one is a white rider. Um, and in John's time, you rode a white horse to symbolize conquest. So he's meant to symbolize conquest in his riding. And so he comes, and there's some promising things about him, right? He has a crown, he conquers, and he comes to conquer. And some people have said, you know, later in the book, we see a white rider, and he has crowns, and he conquers, and is this... So is this a good picture? Might this even be a picture of Jesus riding forth um, as a crowned conqueror? Who is this white rider? Um, well, it's clearly not Christ. It's a conquering figure who comes as a king, but it's not the Lord. Um, evil forces also conquer in the book of Revelation. So that's not exclusive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and the conquest of this white rider is not said to have any positive effect. On the world, and certainly the white rider who comes has a positive effect uh, when he comes later in the book. And I think the real key is to see that he comes with a with a bow, a rider with a bow. Um, that he he comes and he is holding a bow, and a crown was given to him. Um, in in that day and age, um, there were famous warriors who rode on horses and used bows and arrows. Um, and they were, they were Parthians, and they, they often fought as mounted archers. Um, kind of like if you look at the history of you know, Native American warfare in this country, the, the Comanches were known for always fighting on horseback. That was their thing. They didn't get off their horses. They fought on their horses, which is what made them so dangerous. They could go, they could go sling over the side of the horse and shoot from behind the horse to use the horse as protection, but they didn't get off the horse, so they were very mobile and very hard to fight. And so if you read the, the history of, of the Comanches, they're a, a fearsome fighting force. And there were Parthian raiders who were like this. They were good with a bow and arrow, and they fought off the back of their horses, and they would raid into the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And they were known for being raiders. And so when you saw archers coming on horses, that was a sign of war. That was not a sign of something pleasant coming. And if we think about how this letter first went to churches in Asia Minor and places that were in the eastern part of the empire, 
this would have been an image familiar to them. So seeing a rider on a, on a horse with a bow and arrow in conquering is not a good image. Um, it's an image of warfare. It's an image not of blessing, but of suffering. Um, and as these seals begin to break, it becomes clear that just because the lamb is conquered and enthroned in heaven doesn't mean that suffering is over for those who dwell on the earth. Um, that The churches on earth will continue to suffer for a time from what's going on. So there's the first rider who's on a white horse. We call him the white rider. The second horseman comes on a, bread, a bright red horse, um, a horse that's the color of blood and fire. Um, and so this bright red rider comes and his power is given to him to take away the peace of the world. Um, and he takes away the peace of the world and makes war. He's given a great sword. Uh, the third horseman comes as the black rider. He comes with scales. Um, and maybe it doesn't come out so fearsome to us that he comes with scales and quoting grain prices. Um, maybe, we, you know, that doesn't really make us quake in our boots to hear grain prices being quoted by the court. You know, sort of, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, what, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Um, well, again, this is coming into an Asian context. And so in the province of Asia, what they have in abundance is oil and wine. They, they've got, they can grow their own grapes. They grow their own olive, olive, olive trees. They've got oil. They've got wine. That's fine. But they couldn't grow any of their own grain, which was the other thing you needed to live back then. Um, you always needed grain, you needed oil, and you needed wine. Those were the three staples of life. They could make two of them, and that's, I think, the, the import of don't, don't harm the wine, or the oil or the wine. But they can't do the other one for themselves. And without the other, you starve. And what he comes is quoting prices that are sort of outrageous. So to put it more in our terms, it's like as if he comes riding in and saying, gas for $200 a gallon. Right, we think of four is bad, but gas for $200 a gallon. Like it's quoting prices that are completely unrealistic and you couldn't, you couldn't afford it if you had it. Um, that's the point of, of this, these quotes, these prices that are totally outrageous. And when do you see prices like this? breaking out. It's during times of famine. It's sort of the supply and demand of war-ravaged lands, where you, you can't buy anything because there's nothing to be had, and whatever you could buy to pay for is, is heavily priced, because nobody has it. Um, it's a picture of land ravaged by famine and war. Um, so that's the, the terrible picture that he brings that's not so immediately apparent to us. Um, they almost completely import grain. And so it's a picture of, uh, of devastated food supply um, from war and famine. And then, of course, the fourth horseman comes, who we all know well. Um, maybe it's from you know, Wyatt Earp quoting him in Tombstone or you know, some other place where you know, sometimes movies and plays do this and some language is really grim. You come up with the pale rider. Um, Clint Eastwood comes in as the pale rider, not to be confused um, with that. And he, he's pale, but literally what the Greek is, is he's, he's the rider who comes in on the green horse. Um, now maybe pale sounds a little more, you don't see Clint Eastwood riding in on a green horse. But what it is, it's the color of like what you, what you see someone right before they're seasick. It's the way they look when they're really sick. You ever had that, you know, on a ferry going to Catalina and you look over at your friend and they're green, right? That's the color of this, that's the color of this guy's horse. 
Um, it's a sick, sickly looking animal. It's, it's, it's pestilence that he brings. Um, it, it's the sickness that follows. His, the rider is death and hell follows him. Um, what, what these first four seals breaking shows is that all of, all of these terrors are going to be unleashed in the world between the time of the lamb, Lamb's conquest and his return. Um, and some people, because, you know, these four horsemen come and they come in order, you know, some people say, you know, try to peg down these events. Like, well, first, there's going to be some terrible conquest. And then there's going to be, you know, some terrible food, you know, war. And then there's going to be a terrible food shortage. And then there's going to be death in Hades. And then, you know, these things happen. Like, it's going to happen in chronological order. And what it's just showing is this is, these are overlapping things that happen in the history of the world. These are the things that are going to happen in the world between the coming of the Lord and his return. Uh, this is just what happens in history. Um, war, pestilence, suffering, famine, death. Right. This is just what's going to characterize this time. Um, this is what's going to happen in the course of history. And so why, why is this, why did the Lamb have to come to open these things? Right. You could have said, well, how is any of this new, right? There was war and pestilence and famine and trouble in the world before the Lamb conquered. So how, did, how is it that this is, is testifying to the last times? Um, well, in, in one sense, it's restrained by the Lamb in the world. You know, some, some people will say, you know, there's suffering in the world, that means there's nobody in control. And they use that kind of argument against the existence of God. The fact that there's suffering in the world must mean there can't be a good God in the world because he wouldn't allow suffering. Um, and what people miss, first of all, is that the world would be far worse were God not restraining evil. Um, now, that's a kind of Calvinist comfort you give. Cheer up, things could be worse. Um, but the reality is, if God were not restraining evil in the world, evil would be a lot worse in the world. Um, and that's one thing that makes it new. They're given only authority over a quarter of the world. Now, that's a lot of the world, but it's not all of the world. They're, they're, the sense there is there's a restraining hand on them that they can't just rack, you know, work wreck and ruin wherever they want to. Um, that there is a restraining hand um, and that these things can't go on forever. That they are coming to an end, that they are being restrained and one day that they will be entirely cut out of the world. That's what makes this end different. Because the Lamb has authority and is ruling and reigning over the heavens and the earth. And while these sufferings are going to accomplish God's purpose for his church in history, um, it takes on a special significance in light of the death, resurrection, and conquest of Jesus Christ. Because now we, we see the suffering that we're suffering as entering into his suffering. As sharing the tribulation he had to go through to triumph. Um, we see ourselves as participating in that, not... Not, not left to ask, where are we in this suffering? Has the end come? When will the end come? No, it puts it in a different perspective that now Christ has conquered and that we are sharing in his tribulation. And remember, we were oriented in this direction at the beginning of this book when John said in, in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Um, that we realize that he suffered and conquered and that we will suffer and conquer. 
The, what, what has made everything different now is that victory is sure. The lamb has overcome. Um, and his people will overcome with him. Um, and even though the fourth horseman may be named Death and Hades may follow after him, we serve a king who has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. Who was dead and behold, he's alive forevermore. Um, and so the character of this suffering changes completely. And because he's triumphed, he says to us, fear not, I am the first and the last. Death and Hades may be coming, um, but he's the one who's the master of death and Hades. He's got their keys. Um, he's in control of all of these things. Even in the midst of suffering, he's Lord. Um, and that's what's changed for the church since his resurrection, is that we understand that in a way that we didn't see it before. We're not waiting for the Messiah who is to come. We're trusting the Messiah who has come um, and who has overcome and who says to us in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in, may, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, and my dad in his book that we're going through right now, just to remind you of that, um, says, in this present suffering, the church must not think that Jesus has failed, but must believe that he's accomplishing his purpose through their suffering. And so we can almost imagine John saying, you know, let's get this scroll open, and then like, boom, 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 boom. These things happen. You might imagine that by that fifth seal, he's like, I'm not sure we should keep doing this. This is not what I expected. I was really hoping for, for better. And, and we kind of get better from the fifth seal. Um, the fifth seal, we might be sort of cringing to see what's going to come when the fifth seal is opened. But in verse 9 we read, when, the, when, I, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, things don't get worse. We're given in the midst of the picture of the awfulness of, of earth, this glorious picture of heaven. Um, you might say, well, it doesn't sound so glorious. These people were all killed for the sake of the word. Um, they were all killed for the sake of the word, but now they're in heaven. Uh, they're, they're resting under the throne. So there's a dramatic shift in the view. The terrors of the earth are replaced by the vision of heaven in the fifth seal and reminding us that despite the suffering on the earth, uh, there is still heaven where God's souls, the souls of God's people dwell um, and those who were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne are safe and resting. That no matter what this world does to us, God's people will be safe and at rest with him. Either protected in this world or brought to the next world, but we will be safe with him. And these, these, these saints in glory, those, their souls are safe and resting, but they are still wondering and longing. They're still waiting for the final culmination of history. That's why we work hard to say, you know, sometimes we can get this impression like my whole goal is to die and go to be with Jesus. Then I just want my soul to go to be with Jesus and that that's the end of the story. Um, and, and although that's a great comfort for the people of God and that's what we long for, that's, that's the next to last thing 
that we're hoping for. There's a, there's a last thing we're hoping for beyond that, which is the resurrection of our bodies. Um, and so the glory is not just going and dying and being with the Lord. That's the first part of the glory. But we're waiting for a further glory, that there are even the saints who are here, who are safe and who are resting, are still wondering and longing. They're wondering and longing for something greater. And they're calling out to the God who they love and who they serve um, for justice. Not for revenge. That's, I think, sometimes what comes to mind when you hear avenge. It's not revenge. It's they're calling for justice. Um, they're the martyr throng in glory waiting for the consummation. Um, and it, it's good to be reminded that even in heaven, people are longing for the justice of God. Um, that, that that's a continuing cry we hear throughout Scripture. One of, the, one of the things that I liked about the Psalms is they wrestle often with that question. Since I know that God is in control and I know he's on the side of his people, then how come the kinds of stuff happens to us that happens to us in the world? Um, How come we know God's in control, that he's sovereign and true? Uh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. He's the sovereign God. He's the covenant God. He's, He's holy. He's true. But bad things still happen to his people. And how long are you going to let it happen? And the two things that you often hear the, the psalm, people in the Psalms yelling for is they say, God, you have to vindicate your name. Because when the evildoers prosper and nothing happens to them, they say there is no God. And so the godly people are first and foremost concerned for God's name. You know, they're, they're running you down out here and you're the glorious God. How long are, you, how long are we going gonna to permit that? And of course, the other problem they have is they're not just running you down, they're running us down. You know, for, for your sake, we're being slaughtered all the day long. And that's the struggle that keeps coming out in Scripture. How long? Um, how long before you vindicate your name? How long before you vindicate your people? Um, it's a reminder that God's providence is often frustrating and confusing to the people who are waiting. Um, and the book of Revelation helps us to face these kinds of agonizing questions. Um, even when the answer is sometimes it's going to be a little bit longer. Right? It's going to be a little bit longer. Um, how does God answer their cry for vengeance? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Um, that's good news, that they were each given a white robe. Um, because that's what the saints wear in glory, but particularly because of what we read in Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So being wrapped in the white robe is not an insignificant thing. It shows that they have conquered and that he will never blot their name out of the book of life. He doesn't say, not now, because he doesn't love them or because they're not his or because they need to do something else. He loves them. They've conquered. Their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. He will confess their name before his father and his holy angels. It's not that he doesn't love them, but it's that he still has work to do. Right? Um, They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They're also at rest. Rest a little longer. Um, it's a little harder for us to hear a little longer because it means fight a little longer. 
But they're told, rest a little longer. Um, Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There's a sense in which this is not just talking about those martyred for the faith. I think Revelation is, is looking at all of the faithful as martyrs. Um, that, that the whole of the faithful are martyrs. Because the whole of the faithful will one day be robed in white. I mean, there's nothing different about these martyrs than was said of the rest of the faithful in Revelation 7-9. This is the way the church is looked at. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Um, and the Lord is saying, I'm still going to gather your brothers, but I gather them through suffering. Um, that's still a reality, and that's the continual drumbeat that we're being reminded in Scripture. Suffering does not mean you're losing. Suffering is the way you're overcoming. That's how you overcome through battle, through war. It's overcoming by suffering, um, by going and doing the difficult thing and coming out victorious in the end. Um, Uh, Present love and a hope for future judgment on those who reject love are not incompatible or contradictory. Because what are they calling for? Vengeance. They're calling for justice. They're calling for God to avenge. And sometimes when we hear that as Christians, and we'll we'll end here, but um, sometimes we hear that as Christians, we say, is that the prayer we should pray? Lord, how long before the justice falls? How long before the justice falls? You know, shouldn't we be rather trying to save people and uh, do those things. And of course, you know, today is the day of salvation. We're hoping that nobody suffers the fate of the vengeance of God that's coming. Um, that's part of the gospel presentation. It's like, yes, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say as a pastor to people, you know, believe in Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You'll be right before God. You'll be given the gift of eternal life. You'll have nothing to fear. Everything that you've done has been forgiven you in Christ. That's a wonderful thing to be able to say. But the flip side of that gospel presentation is that anyone who rejects him, there's no hope for you. Because if you don't put your faith and trust in Christ, there's a day when he's coming and it'll be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow will be too late. Um, And Jesus said that about the Pharisees. So there's a day coming when you'll seek me and you won't find me and you'll die in your sin. And there will be people, we'll read later, who when he, at his coming will ask for the earth to swallow them up and for rocks to fall on them and cover them to hide them from the vengeance of the one who's coming. Um, and that's why the church is always pleading with the world. Um, that, that Paul says that's our ministry, to, to, to plead with people, be reconciled to God. Um, because we don't want you to experience the judgment that's coming. We want you to embrace Christ and live. He desires to show steadfast love. Um, but he will be just. And that's, that's what we're reminded of. And so, you know, calling for justice is calling for God's name to be vindicated, calling for God's people to be vindicated. Justice is a good thing. Uh, justice is the right thing. We want to see justice done in the world. Um, and when we see injustice happening and it's unpunished, we get angry. We think somebody should do something about that. Well, Christ is going to come and do something about that. Um, and that's what God's people are calling out for. And so it is right and proper for us to call for the judgment of God as well, to, to try to seek to save the world, but to also say, Lord, vindicate your name. 
because they're running you down out here. Vindicate your people because they're running them down in the world. I mean, every time we pray, come Lord Jesus, that's not just a pray for, prayer for blessing on us. It is a prayer of imprecation on the world. And that, that is part of what's, what Revelation gives you know, no quarter about saying when God comes, it's going to be a very good thing for those who love him and it's going to be a very awful thing for those who've rejected him. Those who love him will rejoice at his coming and those who pierced him will wail on account of him uh, when he comes. And so th- this, is, this is reminding us of that, of that reality that as the end is nearing, there's that call that judgment is coming. Um, and for the martyrs, they're calling for that judgment to come so that the end will come and God will be glorified and they will be made whole. Um, the, the call is for God's goodness and for the, the glory of the church. Um, and they're being assured that they only need to wait a little longer. Um, two seals longer to be exact. So um, that's, that's what I wanted to say about, about this. So any questions? Yes. Yeah, we see it as past, present, and future. That's right. Um, and some people see it. Pardon me. Yeah. Do do some people see it as the timeline? As you know, some of these things are in the past. Some of them are in the present. Some of them are yet to come. And we see them as more as past, present, and future. Um, I would say the latter part's true. Whether most Baptists would say it's all future, I don't know. There are a lot of people who do say, you know, once the letters to the to the churches are over, then a whole new chapter in the book begins and. It's all futuristic prophecy that's to be fulfilled at a later date. Um, but yeah, we're taking the viewpoint that this is talking about the whole history of the church between the comings of the Lord. And so this is characterizing everything viewed from different angles. Does that answer your question? There are definitely some people who think it's all future. Um, or some people who think it's all been fulfilled, that all this was talking about things that would happen at the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And once that happened, it's all fulfilled. Um, some partially fulfilled and some yet to be fulfilled. So, but yeah, we're taking the, the taking the view more that this is this is this book is meant for the church in every generation to characterize. This is what it looks like to go from from grace to glory in the service of the Lord. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Let's uh, close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess that it's hard to hear that we have to wait a little longer, that we, like John, want to see the, the end revealed and are sometimes frustrated by uh, the time it takes and want to cry out how long before you'll vindicate your name and vindicate your people. And so help us, Lord, to be patient, knowing that you are working to gather your church, that the Lord Jesus Christ did suffer and we suffer with him, and through tribulation he arrived at his heavenly kingdom, and that through the tribulation we face, we too will arrive in glory. Help us to be patient, help us to be faithful and diligent to serve you and to fight under his banner until uh, he calls us home. We pray that that would be quickly. We do pray for all those in the world who don't know him, who if he came today would meet his justice, and we, we fear for them. We have people that we know who we love who we grieve for when we think about their fate before the Lord and we pray that you would yet give them the gift of faith, that you would be merciful on them so that they might 
join the throng of the faithful and not be consumed with the wicked. Lord, and help us when we think about the wicked not to see them as a lot different than we are, but to see us as more like them. The only difference is we've been given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit to see Christ and embrace him as king. It's a free gift of your grace. So make us humble to recognize we're no different than our neighbors, except that you were gracious to us. May we be gracious to our neighbors and help them as we can to see Christ, who is the king, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the root of David. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, thank you for coming.